You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Where are we, Lionel? Dove siamo il leone della Liviera Ponente? <laughs> he's, he's got the hand gestures and everything. He's been there 24 hours and he's got the hand gestures. <laughs> Come on. Oh, Daniel, well, I have descended the Poggio like a stone and I am in an apartment in San Remo, just near to the roundabout where they, they kind of go across and into the Via Roma. How did you, Probably how could did have you heard. descend? On the bike? On a bike? No, not today, no. Descended in the cycling podcast Broom Wagon, uh, driven by Simon Gill, our friend, the photographer. And uh, I am in an apartment owned by a very good friend of the podcast, Alessio Punzi, a uh, big cycling fan, cycling podcast listener. He actually offered us the use of his apartment last year if we were coming to cover Milan San Remo. On that occasion, we weren't. But this year, I thought I'd take him up on his very kind offer. Thank you very much, Alessio. He's actually away at the moment. So uh, we are in the heart of San Remo. Probably could have stayed here and listened to the finish line commentary all afternoon because we're that close to the finish line. But we didn't do that. Myself, Simon Gill and Herbie Sykes, who was joining us to make a Friends of the Podcast episode, which will be out shortly. Uh, we went up to the Poggio and just uh, took it all in. Um, I've ridden the Poggio before, most recently on Thursday, but I have ridden it before. Uh, but this was my first experience of Milan San Remo live and in the flesh. Ordinarily, and po- ordinarily, because I guess the post-race, the winner's press conference is probably possibly going on as we speak. I, up until a few years ago, I would have said it was a shame that you weren't at the winner's press conference, purely because of the venue line it takes place in the Ariston Theatre, where the most famous thing that happens in San Remo every year, the music festival, takes place in February. But it no longer is. It's now in a fairly nondescript building a kilometre up the road. Do you know? I think it actually might be in the casino this year. But I stand to be corrected on that. I don't know. There was basically we weren't going to get down uh, the climb and into the... I mean, it's it's fairly chaotic. Basically, San Remo at the moment is just a traffic jam. Um, But we witnessed the moment, really, of the race up there on the Poggio. And, uh, well, if you... Uh, don't want to know the result? Listen away now. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Okay, riders are coming now. Riders are coming now. Well, Lionel, long gone, unfortunately. Well, for the moment, other days when we did a tale of the tapa. Um, can we have a sintesi della Sanremo? A summary of, of Sanremo, please. Along okay. the lines of the old tales of the tapa. We can. I mean, for ages, it felt like absolutely nothing was happening. And yet my notes are copious. It's, it's, that's, that tells the story of Milan Sanremo or Abbiate Grasso Sanremo, as it was today. Um, yesterday, La Gazzetta dello Sport had a double page spread looking ahead to the race. And it featured the five favourites under the headline Sanremo Colossal. 
And today we saw four of those men break clear on the Poggio and fight it out between them. And they were Matthew van der Poel, Filippo Ganna, Wout van Aert and Tadej Pogacar. The missing man, Julian Alaphilippe, crashed halfway through the race at the top of the Turquino. And apparently he also unclipped his uh, foot mm. from his pedal a couple of kilometres from the bottom of the Poggio. I mean, I had no idea about that at the time. Uh, so he was out of position anyway. But uh, Matthew van der Poel, he seized the moment on the Poggio. Um, went hard, had a small gap going past the most famous telephone box in cycling on the left-hand bend at the top and stretched that gap out, Sean Kelly, Matej Mohoric style on the descent. He adds Milan Sanremo to his two Tour of Flanders wins. He's also obviously won the Amstel Gold Race in Strada Bianca. And he continues an incredible run of top 10 finishes in the so-called monuments. Uh, more of that debate in our Friends of the Podcast special coming up in uh, a week or so's time. But that run stretches back to Il Lombardia in August 2020. And Van der Poel, the first Dutch winner since Henny Kuiper 40 years ago, four decades ago. And he matches his granddad, Ramon Poulidor, who won Milan Sanremo in 1961 and does considerably better than his dad, Adri, who was, well, his best result in Milan Sanremo was only seventh. Apparently the second fastest Milan San Remo of all time, and the winning margin of 15 seconds was the biggest since Giorgio Furlan in 1994. Now, Furlan, whose record on the Poggio was also broken today. Right, okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm waiting for that second fastest time of all time to be, uh, second fastest average speed, sorry, to be uh, ratified by the boffins. But uh, yeah, rapid because it was tailwind, really. Uh, the tailwind was at their backs for the majority of the coastal stretch. Obviously, as they were on the Poggio, it kind of you know, was in their faces and coming from the side. But, you know, at critical moments, it was at their backs, which accounted for the uh, speed, I would have thought. Anyway, it, nine riders were in the break and they were Alexander Riabu of Astana, Mirko Maestri and Samuele Rivi of Eolo Cometa, Alessandro Tonelli and Samuele Zoccarato of Green Project Bardiani, Negasi Helu Abreja of Q36.5 Pro Cycling, Alexandra Balmer and Jan Maas of Jaco Alula and Alois Sharin of Tudor. Now they were away for 264 kilometres and the gap was never more than 3 minutes 45 seconds. The bunch probably nervous about letting it get out of hand because of that tailwind I was talking about. Really the first incident of significant note was that crash for Alaphilippe on the Turquino. That also included Jasper Philipson and three other riders. Philipson of course teammate of Matthew van der Poel. There was a familiar pattern, wasn't there, of chasers. It was rotating between Trek and Alpacin, Jumbo Visma and UAE, just keeping that break in check. Sharam was dropped on the Capo Mele. Then the bunch kind of eased off a bit, didn't want to catch the break too soon. On Capo Berta, the final one of those three little climbs that precedes the Cipressa Abreja was dropped and that led left six riders in the lead, but they were caught approaching the Cipressa. Just before that, actually, Jan Traknik, your man, I did think of you, Daniel. Jumbo Visma man was down in a tangle with Michal Kwiatkowski of Ineos. And then it was into the Cipressa, led by Ineos and Lotto Destiny. UAE took over with Diego Ulissi and Tim Wellens for Tadej Pogacar. Uh, but nothing of great note happened on the ascent. But on the descent, there was a little split. Matteo Trentin of UAE was away for a while with two Alpecin riders, one of whom was Matthew van der Poel. Niels Pollock was off the front on his own for a bit after the Cipressa for Bora. Then Bahrain Victorious led it hard into the Poggio um, and, well, 2.5 kilometres to go to the top. 
Tim Wellens and Tadej Pogacar went together for UAE. They almost took the sting out of their own attack around that corner, didn't they? Uh, had to sort of ease off as they went around the corner. And that split it into the kind of final eight from which Matthew van der Poel attacked just before the top, got those crucial bike lengths into that corner, opened up the gap on the descent. The chase behind was Pogacar, Ganna and Van Aert but they were never going to get on terms, were they? And Matthew van der Poel, what a performance. It's now been nearly four decades since a Dutchman won San Remo, and Mathieu van der Poel is going to do exactly what his grandfather did in the 1960s. Mathieu van der Poel is a monuments man again. Mathieu van der Poel is a Milano San Remo winner. Yes, Lionel, and a surprising one, wasn't it? Because he had sort of been talking down his chances or... Um, certainly not convincing too many people in Tirreno that he was on San Remo winning form. There was one day in San Remo, I thought about it today, uh, the stage to Tortoreto Lido, which was a bit of a test, good test for Milan San Remo. And he came over the line sort of waving at the crowd and joking with Filippo Ganna, um, which seemed seemed appropriate um, after what we saw today. But, you know, it was, a, it was an uncharacteristic van der Poel performance, I would say. Apart from the extraordinary, the sort of thermonuclear attack at the top of the podio, it was economical in the sense... Sorry, it was untypical in the sense that it was economical, very economical. I remember a couple of years ago, it was, um, I think it was 2021, it was van der Poel's first San Remo as the sort of outstanding favourite. And we talked afterwards about how sort of erratic his riding his had been, how erratic his positioning had been on the way into the podium. And today was noticeable in the key phases of the race. He was always on someone's, usually a rival's wheel. He was usually able to follow a rival's wheel, particularly, you know, Van Aert on the Poggio. Um, again, that was sort of poignant, appropriate, the fact that it was his historic rival that, you know, we've seen Van Aert maybe be overly generous before in races and I don't know how much difference it made or would have made um, if he'd sort of flicked the elbow and asked Van der Poel to come through at certain times but it certainly benefited Van der Poel because he hadn't been in the wind for a single second before he took off effectively he countered the Pogacar move. Yeah, I mean, we watched the race in the little bar at the top of the Poggio. And uh, I, I mean, it was it was on the descent of the Cipressa where that gap opened and it was Trentin, Van der Poel and his Alperson teammate. Was it Soren it Kraut was Anderson? Anderson? Yeah, yeah it was. I, thought, I thought it was. Difficult to tell from where we were, lots of heads in front of us. Um, but um, I thought it was quite restrained. They, you know, they weren't going to push on. They were just ahead that was all really it wasn't like it was a tactical move really they were just ahead there was obviously no thought of kind of pushing on from that point uh, probably fairly futile I, I agree with you it was it was calculating it was restrained and the moment was executed with absolutely nothing held back I mean we were stood probably six to eight hundred meters from the top of the Poggio as they came round a bend and just first started to feel the tailwind behind them again and the four I mean the the, the Galacticos of the of the moment in um you know uh, one day racing I mean okay you could argue Ghana is kind of just off the back of the Galactico status at the moment but the other three and Ghana what a formidable quartet to be away and I mean, the crowd was going crazy and that was, it was obvious that the winner was going to come from 
those four at that moment just because as the next group came around the corner, there was all of that kind of half looking around and the, the speed was lower and the hesitation, that crucial hesitation you talked about in our preview, Daniel, that was the moment that it happened. Those four were away. And then the question was, who will snap break it down from four to a, a winning one or perhaps two. And, well, Van der Poel didn't leave, you know, anyone wondering for very long, did he? This, the next move was absolutely decisive. And what was really interesting was just how little he actually needed going into that corner past the telephone box. I mean, it was a matter mm. of bike, bike length. But then after the first couple of big hairpins, which are quite well spaced out, he'd really pressed home that advantage. And it was. It, it, yeah. The, I mean, Done. I didn't have the impression... Well, he said afterwards that he didn't take any risks. And certainly I was watching Italian TV and the commentators on um, Italian GCN were under the impression that he wasn't going down very quickly and he wasn't doing a particularly great descent. And it was sort of in the second half of the descent that the gap started to go up. There were a couple, again, that hesitation, there were a couple of moments when uh, Gann and Van Aert sort of looked at each other and that's probably all it took for Van der Poel to, to open up the gap a bit more. But I, it was another addition, Lionel, which underlined the changing nature of this race and maybe the irrevocably changed nature of this race in the sense that you know we still think about it as a sprinter's race and we still name sprinters or sprinters who can climb in our lists of favorites and if you look at the race you know when it gets to the Cipressa um, you might be under the mistaken impression that it is still a sprinter's race because at the, on the Cipressa okay riders afterwards talked about a headwind but there were a lot of sprinters very close to the front end of the race. Caleb Ewan, um, well, he he reminded me of the ride he did a couple of years ago when he was climbing almost on the front line on the Poggio as well, where he looked incredibly comfortable when he wasn't the only sprinter. But then they just vanish um, when the attacks start to go on the Poggio. And, you know, I was looking at the weights of those four riders that went away um, 78 kilos, that's Van Aert, 75 Van der Poel, 82 kilos Ganna, and 66 kilos Pogaccio, who is the outlier. He's the odd one out. He's, I mean, as we know, he's a bit of a, a, a mold breaker. Um, it, it, it occurred to me today that if, if they'd had a time trial at San Remo instead of an, a 295-kilometer classic, then those might have been the top four riders. Um, and that is kind of what San Remo has become. It's almost a seven, eight kilometer time trial from the bottom of the Poggio with a bit of help from people's teammates. Yeah, I mean, the first sprinters who can climb were Davide Ballerini in 12th, Christophe Laporte in 13th, Jasper Phillips in 15th, I mean, I suppose Magnus Court in 14th as well, and Caleb Ewan. So I think that really bears up. They were the group that came in 32 seconds down. Um, you know, the group just ahead, I mean, you know, fairly miraculously, Julian Alaphilippe was in that group um, in 11th place after the, the crash and then the mishap that he reportedly had going into the bottom of the Poggio or just, just before the start of the Poggio. Um, but yeah, it's not a sprinter's race, is it, anymore? And, uh, but it takes us, it takes our, our sort of cycling brains, you know, a few years to kind of latch on to these trends. You, you know, this is now, and the, the character of Milan San Remo has changed incredibly since the year that Mark Cavendish won it, for example, when, you know, yeah. ev everything was about how do the sprinters, 
hang tough on the Chipressa and then start the Poggio far enough up to give themselves uh, not just slippage, but the sort of slippage that then enables them to be close enough to the front after the descent. And uh, the race doesn't shake down like that at all at the moment. And uh, it certainly didn't today. Yeah, and now we just get these sort of atomic bombs being dropped on the Poggio and the sprinters, what we had recognised as the peloton coming into the bottom of the Poggio, a large part of it just vaporises and is no longer a factor in the race at all. Yeah, I mean, we were still stood up there on the Poggio, of course, uh, watching on our phones as Vanderpool finished uh, the job down in the Via Roma and, well, the the riders were coming past us. I mean, the, the, the group that came past us at that point, I think, was the one that was about sort of 12 and a half minutes down, which had Matteo Moschetti in it and, uh, well, a couple of riders from, from the break were in it as well. And, uh, you know, then, even then, 20 minutes down, Jos van Emden, who did a heck of a lot of work for Jumbo Visma earlier in the day, 20 minutes down. As you say, gone are the days when you would have sort of pretty much the whole field finishing within sort of 45 seconds to a minute, um, having hair down the Poggio, mm. sp- sprint finish at the front, won by somebody like Eric Zabel or, or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, the, that kind of um, easiest race to finish, hardest race to win things probably still, um, you know, holds true, but it's no longer a bunch finish. Certainly not at the moment. I want to ask you, about the atmosphere on the Poggio in a second, but just on the Poggio itself, Lionel, um, a lot was made, obviously, about the fact that Van der Poel won today. It was 62 years after his grandfather, Raymond Poulidor's only mo- monument win in Milan San Remo, and that was also with an attack on the Poggio. The Poggio had been introduced the previous year, and, well, Poulidor rode for Mercier, and in 1960, it was a Mercier rider, René Privat, who won the first edition to go over the Poggio with an attack on the Poggio. And then in 1961, Poulidor, who wasn't really that well established um, at that point, he was sort of the plan B for Mercier in 1961. The leader was a guy called Robert Casala. And Casala had attacked and been chased down and Mercier launched Poulidor down the road in a sort of counter move, in a sort of stealth um, contingency move. And he won his only monument. Um, But... Yeah, I was keen to just get your sense. You said it was the first time you'd covered Milan-San Remo. You'd been to Milan-San Remo on race day. Did you get the sense that, you know, the Italians call Milan-San Remo la classicissima, and it's it's sometimes difficult to convey people who don't know Italian cycling that much, particularly with the reputation that San Remo has as a bit of a boring race. It's difficult to convey how big or what it represents in Italian cycling. However, the backdrop today is one of cycling losing its status, its prominence, its prestige in the Italian sporting landscape. And, you know, we've talked about this many times. When you go to Italy now and you talk to lay sports fans or just lay occasional observers of sport about cycling, they know very little. And they can probably, they can't name many riders. So I, I wonder on the Poggio today, what, what was the sense you got of how, how enthusiastic people were, how knowledgeable they were? 
Well, it was interesting. I mean, we talk a lot about this in the Friends of the Podcast special that Herbie and I have been making. And uh, one thing that I've noticed about San Remo generally is, uh, you know, it's it feels like quite an old population here. I, I, I gather, you know, uh, it's sort of a, quite a popular place for people to retire to from, say, Milan or Turin. Um on the crowd, we actually, on the climb, sorry, we found a, a bunch of very enthusiastic young people. When I say young people, I mean people in their 20s and perhaps early 30s. And uh, they were mad for Filippo Ganna. I mean, I do think that, you know, in Italy, particularly, it does feel like if there's a strong home team or home rider, uh, they really, you know, rally behind and, and that elevates um, the race. But they were... Do you know what? You know, as... as Italy has become more of a fading force in professional cycling. It's something that I'm noticing more and more in the media coverage, the sort of chauvinistic, patriotic nature of it, overly patriotic um, nature of the coverage. Particularly this year, the Italians have had quite a good start to the season. Mm. And the people who cover cycling in Italy have got this real sort of, well, on its worst days, it can look like a bit of a, an inferiority complex and they are crowing from the rooftops about any result that an Italian obtains. Well, they were certainly cheering when they knew that Ghana had uh, beaten Van Aert and Pogacar to second place on the podium. And uh, I mean, I couldn't really see how it could have been any different unless somebody had gone before Van der Poel and beaten him to that punch. But oh, easier said than done when you just, like you say, see how violent that ex- acceleration was and how decisive the move was. No, no regrets. Uh, I had one uh, goal today and that was to attack after team's pull. And yeah, team did really perfect job today. Uh, I have to thank him a lot uh, to set up uh, this, this attack in the end and uh, yeah, I was uh, not uh, not strong enough to, to go solo, but uh, yeah, with four guys and then uh, on the pool attacked, which was uh, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't follow. He was too strong, and then uh, yeah, I was dead to the finish. Well, I know that was Pog um, proclaiming himself pretty satisfied with his performance. No regrets from him. Wout van Aert said much the same thing. Not too many regrets. Just going in order. I mean. What did you make of Pog's tweaked strategy this year? We knew he was going to try something different last year. He tried to sort of carpet bomb the Poggio. Um, four or five attacks on the Poggio. This after a really, really fast ascent of the Cipressa with Davide Formolo was really strong in the Cipressa last year. Today, they got their positioning wrong, UAE, on the way into Cipressa, but it didn't take them long to find them, find themselves or to find their way back to the front of the race. And Felix Groschartner was sort of missing missing in action at the start of the Cipressa, but they located him, and then he got it. He made it up to the front, and he set the pace for pretty much the whole of the Cipressa. So they made that relatively hard, although it was still a massive group, much bigger than last year, going over the top. And then the Wellens Pog. One two was clearly a premeditated move on the Poggio, um, and it almost worked. 
It almost worked. I mean, it was it's so hard to know precisely which direction the wind was coming from. The wind was unbelievable. It, I mean, it really was strong at the top, howling tailwind on that kind of false flat as they come up to the top. And so there were sections as we were walking down, we were realising, oh, hang on, this is going to be kind of cross headwind here. So the timing of that attack was curious to me because it was so soon before that tight corner. So they'd accelerated into the corner all the speed taken out of it and then go again now that could have been deliberate maybe you know we'll we'll try and sort of snap the elastic that way with the kind of concertina effect but it didn't really work that way and then uh, when wellens was cooked pogatra went at precisely the right moment i mean they did all that they could really and he was there in the in the you know he was forcing that move he got into the final four but when van der poel went he had no real answer and then you know a lot of horsepower in that chase but again it's so difficult to actually chase on the podyard of thought just because of the uh, you know the the one rider ahead even if van der Poel wasn't necessarily taking every risk that he possibly could he was in front completely clear road you know descending exactly how he would want to do everybody behind is sort of compromised a little bit and then when they came off the um the podio onto the main road pogacha was in front uh Ganna and Van Aert, they were all doing very short turns, weren't they? Perhaps couldn't do more, didn't want to do more, perhaps knew that the gap was too big by that stage, I don't know. But um, they gave it a good go and they you know, they weren't the only team, UAE Team Emirates, to have a real impressive show of force, I thought. I mean, teams, you know, there was a lot of um, work put into that chase just to keep it, you know, I mean, there's, it's always difficult to know how hard it is to do that chase work. But, you know, it was one or two riders from those four teams I mentioned earlier. You could see what Ineos and Lotto Destiny were trying to do, being at the front, going into the Cipressa. And, uh, you know, Bahrain Victorious going into the Poggio, they obviously had something in mind for Mohoric maybe, or, uh, you know, who knows what their tactics were. But, you know, at the key points, the, those big four were, were not really out of position, were they? And uh, you can't really reproach any of them uh, for, for not actually managing to match Van der Poel at the finish. No, uh, the only thing with UAE, I mean, we sort of, we will, I guess, before every edition of Milan San Remo, until he wins one, we'll rack our brains as to how Tadej Pogacar can sort of break this hoodoo. Because it feels as though... Well, it's a race that obviously means a lot to me. He wants to win it. He's the best rider in the world. Um, it feels like he should win one at some point, but it's going to be really difficult. The only thing that I thought, um, when Wellens made his move, there was a moment when Crow Anderson latched onto Pogacar's wheel and Ganna was the next rider. And there was a bit of a gap to Van Aert. Van Aert, whose positioning wasn't great, um, I think... Tratnik's crash before the Cipressa had probably cost Jumbo Visma in that sense because Attila Valta was the other rider. It was Christophe Laporte, Wout van Aert and Attila Valta for Jumbo Visma on the Poggio and Valta was sort of lost at sea. So he was a bit far back, Van Aert, and Van der Poel was close to Van Aert. I can't remember whether he was on his wheel. But they obviously had in mind that Wellens was going to do this kilometre pull or 800 metre pull full gas as hard as he could. Part of me thought, if they'd reacted to circumstances, if they'd got the message that Van Aert and Van der Poel had been caught napping, maybe Pogacar could have anticipated, could have launched his, his, you know, sort of scorched earth attack 
at that moment and left Wellens behind. But then, again, you mentioned the wind. Um, would he then have just been flapping around in the wind on, on his own? Um, that's very possible. You know, I also wonder, I said this was clearly a premeditated move for UAE. He gives the air of such an instinctive rider um, that I just wonder whether it will ever get to the point with him and his team, this goes against, this flies in the face of everything we see in teams and the way cycling is moving, but whether one day he'll just decide, I'm going to be instinctive at Milan Torema and I'm just going to react to circumstances. Um, you know, I, I've said before with regard to Milan Torema, I always quite like the chances of the of the rookie in Milan Torema, the first timer, because I think maybe they, more than riders who have done it many, many times, do react to the the situations unfolding before their eyes rather than sticking to a pre-established plan i don't know yeah maybe you know being sort of you know harnessed to a teammate might not necessarily be the best idea i don't know i mean i remember the lockdown milan sanremo in in the august 2020 when he was 12th and that was a real kind of eye-opening performance because i i didn't really think he was the sort of rider that would um you know be up there in that sort of fast finish i I don't really know why but i suppose at the time this is before he'd won the tour de france of course i thought well he's a mountain goat you know that's all that's what he is he's he's obviously got a lot more as you say the best rider in the world Uh, Milan San Remo is still going to be a very hard race for him to win I mean Peter Sagan was the best rider in the world and didn't manage to win at Milan San Remo I mean he is getting closer 12th 5th and 4th by my reckoning 2026 he wins it (laughs) and when is Wout Van Aert going to win it again Um, that's what's that three years out of the last four he's been on the podium now yeah, not been the ideal build-up for him. I was actually really impressed with how well he did, considering uh, it's not been the best spring for him. You know, he postponed his start a little bit, missed Strada Bianca because of illness in Tenerife at training camp, said he missed a couple of weeks or a week of training and or was, you know, certainly training at a lower intensity than he might have wanted to. Um, then had that little crash in Torino Adriatico with, with Tom Pidcock. So I wasn't 100% certain he'd have the legs to go 294 kilometer you know go that deep be there with that power and that quality at the end I think he would actually be pretty okay might be disappointed with the result but actually be pretty pleased with where he is with you know the Tour of Flanders two weeks away and and Paris-Roubaix the week after that it was a more passive Jumbo Visma than we we've become accustomed to seeing when you think back to for example, the state of Calais in the Tour de France last year, a small rise, not dissimilar to the Poggio, shorter and steeper, I think, but um, a, a, a climb that not many people had down as a, a big launch pad turned turned out to be that with Van Aert winning. And, you know, even going back to Paris-Nice last year with Laporte, Roglic and Van Aert taking off on their own. And I, I wondered whether we might see something similar today. I don't, I don't know, like I say, how much Trapnik's absence um, in the key stages of the race um, handicapped them. But as you say, I think probably the bigger factor is that Van Aert clearly feels that he's a little bit behind schedule with his preparation. Yeah, what about the others? I mean, Trek Segafredo were very visible in the chase, weren't they? They had Mads Pedersen in sixth and Jasper Sturven in tenth. So two in that uh, second group. Uh, but, uh, I mean, considering Pedersen didn't finish Paris-Nice, uh, that's probably not a 
terrible result. I thought Nielsen Paulus did well as well. I mean, missed the split when it broke down to eight, but made a real effort to try and get across. And uh, I mean, EF as well were prominent as the race kind of reached the Chipressa having been quiet yeah, earlier were- in the day. There were, there were a lot of teams who will have gone back to their team buses in San Remo tonight and, and have felt as though they fulfilled their brief in the sense that for most teams, it, it was and is always about getting their leader to the bottom of the podium in a good position. And there were a lot of teams who did that. I mean, even Antel Marche, they were sort of riding their own race at one point on the side of the, on the opposite side of the road to everyone else coming into the podio. And again, they were flapping around in the wind, but nonetheless... They did sort of deliver Biniam Gamay in a decent position, sort of top 10 coming into the bottom of the Poggio. Um, Trek, as you say, they were active all day, particularly over the Capi, but Pedersen was where he would have wanted to be, um, I suppose. Um, Lotto Destiny were intriguing in the sense that Caleb Ewan, as I said, he looked incredibly sprightly on the Cipressa and Arno Deli started the Cipressa in great position. Um, my uh, faithfully jinxed um, early season tip for Milan San Remo. And then sort of fast forward a kilometre or so at the top of the Cipressa and Arno Deli looked like, I don't know, he looked like he was riding in the 1970s, sort of head bobbing. Um, I, you know, he looked like he should have been wearing a sort of silk jersey, um, mm. a real sort of throwback. Bike riders don't really look like that anymore, but he looks completely, I mean, I'm sure he, I'm sure he wasn't out of his depth in the sense that, you know, he's a rider with a very promising future. He's going to contend for a lot of classics in, in the coming years, but he looked, um, he looked as though he was struggling. Yeah. I mean, when he went, it was the manner that he went. Uh, he's not coming back from there. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, they were, they were, like you say, the, the teams kind of did, um, conventionally what you would expect them to do the the big teams anyway they all had moments where you could see what they were doing moving up on one side of the road or the other you know um possibly Bahrain victorious might think you know they bossed it at the bottom of the podio and then well nothing really seemed to you know shake down for Mahoric I mean he clearly uh, wasn't on the same sort of form uh, that he had last year uh, perhaps not feeling that same swagger but you know very difficult to uh, repeat I would have thought a, a, a victory like that especially if uh, well everyone would would anticipate what he'd be trying to do and he was completely beaten to it anyway yeah and just thinking about the the weights of those riders and the power of those riders at the front if there was a tailwind on the Poggio descent um, or most of the Poggio descent then it probably made it even more difficult um, to, to catch and, and ride away from those riders um, in the way that he did last year. I think their their plan was probably for him to just sort of hang on to the coattails of of those Galacticos at the front or get it to the top of the podio within two or three seconds of the front of the race and then reproduce exactly what he did last year. But uh, ultimately, he was just a little bit too far away, wasn't he? He was indeed. Uh, he was indeed, yeah. Well, we should probably wrap it up there, Daniel, really. That's our kind of quick hit, our... Uh, well, how long has that taken us? It's taken us the ascent and descent of the Poggio, probably, to sum up the, uh, what was it, six hours, 25 minutes of action today. Matthew van der Poel adds another monument to his collection. Surely won't be the last. And I think it bodes well for the remaining classics that uh, 
Now, the, the, the riders that we've seen, Van der Poel, Ganna, Van Aert and Pogacar are going to go up against one another again in the coming weeks. So much to look forward to. Lionel, we might recruit someone who rode Milan San Remo as our third wheel for our slightly deeper dive on on the race in midweek. Someone who rode pretty well in Milan San Remo. I don't even know who I'm talking about or you noticed him, but um, he was there at the bottom of the podio. Yeah. Centre screen, centre of shot. Well, we should have to wait and see. Just before I go, or we go, uh, a quick shout out for Simon Gill's picture today of Matthew van der Poel on the descent of the Poggio. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, we'll post it on Twitter and on our Instagram page, and I'll put it on the Cycling Podcast website as well this evening. So look out for that. It's a, it's a stunning picture. I mean, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. This is worth a few thousand words, I think, because it sums up uh, the, the descent of the Poggio and Van der Poel's win brilliantly. Lionel, what are you eating tonight? Not sure. Most Her- importantly. Her- what did you eat Her- last night? Uh, la- any trophia, oh, yeah? No, last night, uh, well, we've been, we've eaten twice in a row at the same restaurant, La Porta Verde, which was, well, we'd already eaten there on uh, the previous night. And uh, when I posted something on Instagram, Ian Boswell said, while you're in San Remo, go to La Porta Verde. And it was like, well, we've already been there. And the food was excellent. We went back last night. Last night I had um, uh, spaghettoni with anchovies. Uh, followed by stuffed rolled sardines on caponata. Uh, the chef is from uh, southern Italy. Sicily. So, yeah, yeah, basically. So, yeah. Um, but uh, both excellent, really good. And uh, I'm not sure Herbie's uh, job for tonight is to book a restaurant. So w- I will go and meet him now. But uh, you need yeah. to eat something Ligurian. You need to eat some trofi al pesto, no? I, I might go for pesto tonight. Yeah, we've had plenty of focaccia. Um, what else you've been dunking it in your cappuccino no I haven't I haven't and I felt a bit guilty about that because I was the one last year during the Giro when uh, we discovered this strange custom of dipping salty herby bread into cappuccino I was the one sort of saying oh I quite like it but actually on reflection I wasn't in a rush to really repeat that Sam Sam Raymond feels like he should have a focaccia themed ritual I don't know focaccia confetti at the top of the podium that would be good (laughs) Riders, huh? riders <laughs> slipping on slightly greasy squares of bread. Yeah, brilliant. What a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, thank you very much, Daniel. Buonasera. Buonasera. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.